Good afternoon, uh, Mr Bertie Lee. Um, thank you for your time and in joining us in recording our podcast here in Bristol. Uh, just by way of introduction, Bertie, you are a solicitor, uh, past president of the Medical Legal Society, chair of NCPOD, and an honorary fellow of no less than three colleges, including the Royal College of Anaesthetists. My name's Sue McDess, I'm a pediatric anaesthetist in Oxford. Um, and if it's okay with you, um, I'd just like to start chatting about uh, the various legal landmines uh, you've been discussing earlier today. Um, so anaesthesia is incredibly safe these days, and in legal terms, are we in many ways a victim of our own success? Yeah, some things are inevitable. It's, it's a change in the secular landscape within which you work. I quoted my talk this morning, Beecher and Todd, uh, which I think is the most important article for any young anaesthetist to read. In 1954, they reviewed the mortality in top well-funded American institutions between 1946 and 1954, time when the NHS was born, the mortality from anaesthesia, anaesthesia alone, not people who are ASA 4 or 5 and uh, barely expected to survive their disease, but from anaesthesia alone was one in a thousand. Now it's one in a million. It's a thousand times rarer. That obviously should cause the population, when someone dies of anaesthesia, uh, to rise up and give thanks for the 999 who've been saved. That's what you'd expect to happen in any uh, rational circumstance. But that's not the way people are generally. Such a change in the background leads to an adjustment of expectations. And people were not surprised when someone died of anaesthesia in 1946. Today, they are very surprised. What is slightly different is that there's a change also in the expectations of society. And that's much harder to understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I, I quoted a case that my one of my partners was doing this week where a patient died, committed suicide, having been seen by psychiatrists. The family were outraged and angry. And that is a radical change, uh, which is harder to explain. When I started doing this work, if someone committed suicide, suicide had not long ceased to be a crime anyway, uh, but also there was a sense of shame. The family of someone who committed suicide felt shame themselves. They felt they must have let the patient down. Um, everyone experiences the suicide of a close friend as being a personal failure. I think most civilised people say, couldn't I have done more? I didn't realise he was so unhappy and I would have wanted... I wish I'd done better by him. But that's not what happens now. 
in a coroner's court. In a coroner's court now, the relatives are angry and hostile and were angry with the doctors who were powerless. Now, if anaesthesia is a thousand times safer, suicide is not a thousand times rarer, psychiatrists are not a thousand times better at recognizing people who are a danger to themselves. They cannot be because these things are uncertain. They're not susceptible to the same skills and drills. We could, of course, we could, of course, lock up everyone uh, who we thought was looking slightly off colour or slightly depressed or anxious. We could lock them up, and it's true. But that's not generally what we expect our psychiatrists to do. And yet, you've had the same intolerance of failure in psychiatry as you have in anaesthesia. So it is not fair to attribute the whole of the change in attitude to anaesthesia to the advance in your skills, even though that is remarkable and astonishing. There is something else which has gone on in society which has led us to be less tolerant of professionals who are inevitably fallible. So, yes, you are the victims of your own success, but that's not a sufficient explanation of everything else that has gone on. And the idea that people want to scrag their doctors Mm. is a new development which needs more understanding. Okay, thank you. Um, The the advent of the European Working Time Directive, it's been discussed already during this meeting, it's clearly had a huge impact on training and lack of training um, and experience. Um, Is this something that is actually borne out in practice in, in cases that you've come across? If you mean a diminution in the experience and skills of doctors, yes, yes. But you've got to disentangle this. European Working Time Directive came in at the same time as calmanization, when we reduced the number of years that doctors were to train, because trainees became more expensive and our inclination to expose ourselves to inexperienced doctors diminished. You see, you've got the same sort of thing happening in Japan. I have colleagues in Japan and in America uh, who complain about exactly the same secular changes, the diminution in the experience and skill of the doctor and the uh, and they don't have a European working time directive in Japan or in America they do have the same adjustment in expectation of the work life balance and that is not entirely attributable to the fallacy of trying to organize medical training on the basis of laws designed to control Spanish truck drivers. So it, 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 you've, got to, you've got to unpick things a, a little bit there. But certainly the diminution in the commitment to long-term relationship between doctor and patient and experience is profoundly important. We made it worse with the 2003 consultant contract 
which I think was far more damaging than the working time directive. That was when effectively the government decided to tell doctors that it didn't want to trust them to be professional and committed to their patients. It wanted to pay them for the blocks of hours that it would have control over them. And it did pay very substantially to get that control. And then they found they didn't have the money to pay the doctors for the blocks of time they were buying off them. And they lost. So now you have... You now have now you have a doctor who's expected to work for ten PAs a week, and goodness gracious, they do. They used to work in the evenings unpaid. They used to come in at the drop of a hat if there was a patient in need. Yeah. Now they say, "Am I being paid for this?" So that's another development which has nothing to do with the working time uh, directive. Another background secular change doesn't affect anesthesia quite as much other aspects of medicine but used to be the case that a junior doctor worked for 120 hours a week yes but the patients weren't so sick and the patients were around for a lot longer so that the doctors learned to understand the natural history of disease they learned to understand to recognize patients who were not well who were not right who were not proceeding as expected, just from being around them for a lot of other time. Yes, it's true that the junior doctor's time was often being wasted and they were often being treated as cut-price, cheap staff doing things which had nothing to do with training. But through their skin, they were absorbing a much more profound understanding of the natural history of disease, mm. and that has been lost. Yeah, so the Working Time Directive is one part of a complex picture all pointing in the same direction, which is a diminution of the understanding of doctors of the diseases they're treating. So sort of following on from that, um, you, most new consultant contracts are sort of nine, nine to one, nine PAs, one SPA. Um, what advice would you have for a, a brand new consultant just embarking on their career to try and avoid themselves into hot water. Well, you're going beyond my pay grade. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I, 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 it would be impertinent of me to advise doctors as to how they should proceed other than in the most general terms. You should only be doing things that you're confident you've been trained to do. And if you don't think you've been trained to do something, except obviously in an emergency, mm-hmm. you, you shouldn't be doing it. It's as simple as that. You've got to realise that the public's toleration of failure, the public's expectation of you, is much higher than ever before. Yeah. And uh, I don't think I don't think I can go much further than that. No, You've got to remember you're responsible advice. for your own actions yes. at all times. Are you the right person doing what you've been asked to do? Mm. Okay. Just changing tack slightly, um, we're all heavily locked into appraisal and revalidation these days. Um, and I think I mentioned to you there's a recent high-profile case in the courts. Uh, and in the defence, it was the lack of engagement of one of the anaesthetists in the appraisal process was said to... It was A comment was made that that should have been a red flag to the trust that this person wasn't... Uh, engaging in appraisal this was an expert witness and they made the comment that he met the standard of a locum but not for the role he was fulfilling at the time 
And I just wondered what your take was on these comments. Well, in fairness, that prosecution failed comprehensively and the judge threw it out and rejected that evidence. But what I think it, the case shows is that when things go wrong, you can expect a very critical and not always fair eye to be cast over things. You see, not only were they, was that prosecution trying to prove that the doctor had done something criminal, meaning not just negligent but atrocious, it was also trying to prove that the employer had a corporate responsibility for that person. And to try and identify something which makes management responsible for a doctor, you obviously look round at whatever may be available. And the expert witness there chose to use appraisal for that purpose. Uh, the weapon fell apart in his hands because on those facts it, it wasn't right, apart from the fact the doctor hadn't done anything very wrong as far as the judge found. But... As a weapon, I, I, I don't think that it was unreasonable of the expert witness to say that the uh, one yardstick you could use was whether someone engages in an appraisal process. Uh, I, I, I honestly wonder whether most appraisals in, in medicine are fit for purpose and whether they're very helpful in uh, fashioning as formative processes in shaping behaviour uh, or learning, uh, I think they tend to be a tick box exercise far too often. But nonetheless, it is something whereby management, after all, an appraisal is one occasion, once a year, when the organisation looks at the member of staff and says, this is what we think of you. And the member of staff looks at the organisation and says, this is what you're my relationship with you and this is what you're doing for me and for that purpose it is potentially useful but I think it's often a wasted opportunity and uh, there's an enormous pressure just to get appraisals done because people are judged by appraisal rates at my own trust the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital we're very concerned to make sure that the appraisals are done it's a high priority for the board okay that's been very helpful hey, Mr Lee that's been really interesting to talk to you and we're very grateful for your time. Not at all. Pleasure. Thank you.